Welcome to the Hope for Parents of Struggling Teens podcast. My name is Brandon Joffe. My hope with this podcast is that I can touch on relationship and mental health issues in a way that is more helpful than some of the resources out there and that we can weed out some of the unhelpful trends in the industry of mental health and figure out what really works in fixing our relationships and the stuff that doesn't feel so good going on in our heads. The Inspired Resolution Center is dedicated to helping families with teens. So I'm going to talk a lot about teen mental health, parenting, and of course, the different family relationships that go on in families with teens. All right. In this episode, I want to talk about getting help for your child. Now, if you're sitting there and your child's struggling and you can identify with not knowing where to go or what exactly to do, or you're overwhelmed by getting your child help, you are totally not alone. There's a few obstacles that I've identified over the last few years that get in the way of families being able to get their child help when they want to get their child help. The first is a lot of families have actually already tried everything. They're overwhelmed by the flood of too much information and too many options and They feel like they've gone to this center and that center and talked to this person and tried to talk to this person and they're just going, nothing's working or maybe it's us or maybe we're doing something wrong. And you're you're probably not doing something wrong. The truth is there's a lot out there. It is really overwhelming to dig through and truly figure out what the right path for you is. And I'm going to touch on that later in this episode. The next obstacle is that so many things are a controversy these days. It's hard to know what information to trust, what therapies are going to be effective, which therapists or psychologists or psychiatrists are correct in what they're saying, the diagnosis is or what the treatment should be. And so it kind of adds the controversy of mental health kind of adds to that overwhelming feeling and that flood of too much information. The next obstacle I've identified is friends and family. We love our friends and family, but sometimes when we've poured our soul out, shared what's going on with our kids, our families, they all have an opinion. And with their opinion, sometimes comes a pressure to do or follow through with what they suggest. And I would say, please don't take that pressure on for you people pleasers out there. Remember that this journey in finding help for you and your family is your journey. It's good to take information in and consider it, but don't ever be pressured to follow through with somebody's opinion. Now, I know I have talked to people who have friends and family who get angry at them because they give the advice and then it's not taken, but you've got to kind of just block your mind off from that. And remember, this is your journey, not theirs. The next obstacle is that things are crazy expensive and it's not easy to know what programs are going to end up costing in the long run. You know, when, when you go with a, a therapist, one of the first questions I usually get asked when somebody comes to see me for therapy is how much, you know, how much is it going to cost? But how long am I going to have to do this? And the truth is I don't have an answer for you. I've got to start working with you. And even then, I don't truly know how long the course of treatment is going to be. Now, there are some programs that have a beginning and the end and an end to them. And even with those, sometimes the cost is so prohibitive or it's hard to figure out what it's going to cost in the long run. And it becomes a great obstacle to getting 
help. I especially see this in the substance abuse realm of getting help. I mean, with a residential program, you, you could be spending $30,000 a month and you hope that insurance covers it. They may, they may not. But that crazy expensive nature of mental health is often prohibiting people from getting the help that they need. The next one is insurance companies. No offense to any of you who are in the insurance field, but insurance companies with mental health have become so vague in terms of what their referrals and what they're willing to provide. And a lot of us therapists are not willing to deal with insurance companies because, quite frankly, you don't get paid what you're worth a lot of times and you don't even know if they're going to reimburse and pay you. But insurance companies themselves often have vague referrals. I've heard a lot of stories where people get a list from their insurance companies and none of those referrals are really available. And then the fact that insurance companies aren't very upfront with what they're going to pay for and for how long. And and so when you're relying on insurance, sometimes that can be in and of itself a block to getting the help that you need mental health wise. There's probably other obstacles and reasons that people struggle to get the help they need for their child and for themselves. But the last one I've identified is that your child is sometimes not compliant. They want to do treatment one day, then they don't want to do treatment. They don't want to do the treatment that they've been going to. They can be really inconsistent in terms of what they want and what they're willing to do. And I've seen parents damage the relationship, forcing or insisting on kids getting the help that they think they need right now. And and so that battle and that inconsistency of the teen mind can often be a great obstacle to getting the help that the family needs. I, I wish I had some really good resolutions for that. And I think as I talk, there might be a few ways that we can resolve some of these issues. But next, I want to talk about the difference between getting two types of help that I've identified, okay? I have broken getting help down into getting crisis help versus getting the journey of help. In other words, some of you are in such crisis, your child is suicidal or there's an overdose. You've got to get help right now. And I know that many of you feel like you're in a total crisis, but A crisis is, at least from my definition, is it could result in imminent harm or death, okay? And so getting crisis help is different in nature than seeking that long-term growth and long-term healing help, okay? Remember that when you're getting, you're on the journey of getting help, the journey is a long marathon and In the journey, there's a bunch of seeds that get planted. There's habits that get built. You're figuring out what works. You're figuring out what doesn't work. And that may include you being in a season of getting one type of help for a little while and then having to transition into getting help from somebody else somewhere else and a different type of help. It may include medication exploration. It may include a whole lot of things that include your own physical health, et cetera. Okay. But When you're on the journey of getting help for things like depression and anxiety, even though there are crises within that journey, 
It does look different than getting the crisis help. The crisis help is kind of like you go into the hospital, you're finding somebody as soon as possible. When you're on the journey of getting help, you might try a therapist out and realize it's not a good fit. You might go to a program for a little while and feel like you didn't get much from it. And then you might take go on hiatus and not seek out mental health help for a while. But that journey of getting help, I believe, is all worth it, even when you go and get help that you don't really feel worked, okay? Because at the very least, you're figuring out what doesn't work for you. Now, a lot of parents that come in my door are exhausted. They have battled their kids. They have stayed up late nights talking to their kids when their kids are in crisis. And they come in exhausted and they are obsessed. They're obsessed with getting their child help. Now, I kind of flip that on them. And I'm going to lose some of you here because you're you're going to have a hard time wrapping your head around this. But when you've gotten to that point where you feel like you're putting more into your child's mental health than they are, and you feel like you're kind of at the end of the road trying things, I want you to consider stopping the obsession on getting your child help. And I want you to consider getting your own help first. Okay. Now I know this totally goes against parent instinct. I get it. Okay. But this is a really important step for, for a few reasons. The first is a child who is struggling is more likely to get help in the long run when they have happy and healthy parents who have modeled that getting help works. I have seen this pattern over and over again where the parents are obsessed at getting the kids help and nothing works and the kid says that it doesn't work or maybe for a while they think it does and then there's this kind of back and forth battle and everybody's exhausted and it feels like you haven't gotten anywhere i've seen that over and over again and i've also seen over and over again that when the family focuses on getting healthy in spite of the child who's struggling it kind of breaks this cycle up. It gives a family who felt hopeless a lot of hope. And I'm not saying that all of a sudden, a few weeks later, the child who was resistant to treatment or that you couldn't get help for comes in, gets the help they need, and they get better. But what happens is slowly the family dynamics heal in spite of the child who can't get help healing. And slowly there are foundations built so that there can be happiness in the home and happiness in the marriage and happiness in, in, in the individuals who are in the family, regardless of the part of the journey that that one child is on. Now, remember, you are all in a, in a family. Everybody's on their own separate journey, even though you're kind of walking alongside each other. And I always say, please walk alongside your children. Do not walk for them. You cannot do the mental health journey for them. Do not walk behind them. Do not take away their responsibility for their own mental health. They need to get their own mental health help. They have got to participate. And that as a parent walking alongside a child who is not getting help or is not doing what they need to to move forward is frustrating. I know. But 
when you put your efforts where you actually have control, you don't have control over that. But what you do have control over is yourself and your own journey. And again, if you've got a couple of parents who have gotten really healthy and have grown and have found happiness, that child who's really, really struggling is so much more likely to eventually get the help that they need and do the work that it takes to overcome whatever thing they need to overcome. Now, one of the best ways to get your child to like put their toe in the door for therapy when they're totally resistant to therapy is getting your own therapy. We do things a little bit differently in Inspired Resolutions, and sometimes a parent comes in with the child, the child's resistant, and the parent will say, hey, fix my child, and I say, I'd like to meet with you guys, the parents. And the child kind of gets the okay to not do therapy, and the parents get a little bit frustrated, I know, and the kid's kind of happy, and I let the kid know, hey, I might bring you back to give me more insight and more, you know, I might need you to help me help your parents because I know that they're not happy right now and we want to help them get happier. And I think helping them get happier is going to help you. And the kids always buy into that. They are always all for that. Now, what happens is when a parent has modeled going to therapy consistently Doing the work to make changes on themselves, even if they're not wrong, right? I'm not saying the parents are broken and need fixing. It's just what you're doing isn't working. And so when the parents model getting the help that they need and they make progress and then they invite the child in, hey, we'd like to hear from you. The therapist would like to know kind of what you're experiencing and what you're observing, What happens is that child comes in the door of therapy and therapy isn't what they thought it was going to be. They end up actually feeling empowered in that therapy session. And from then on, usually it is so much more likely that that child asks for help or wants to participate in the family therapy. So again, One of the best ways you can get your child to put their toe in the door for therapy is to invite them to your own therapy session, asking them for feedback in terms of the relationship and the parenting patterns that they see at home. So that totally goes against, though, kind of the traditional sense of what we should do when our child is struggling. A lot of times I like to remind parents of this. You might as well get your own help when your child refuses to get help, because let's be honest, you probably have a lot less time on this earth than they do right? So you have less time to be happy. You might as well find happiness regardless of them because you deserve it. You've worked your butt off to get to the point that you're at. They have a long journey ahead of them and a lot of time to figure out getting help. And I always tell parents, let the child know that the resources for getting help are available. You're willing to provide them, but don't jam them down their throats. When you jam it down their throats, it leaves a bad taste in their mouth and you make it less likely that they're going to be able to get themselves to finally ask for help. It becomes kind of like a combative situation, right? They are pushing against it now. I want to go back to the idea of the parents finding happiness regardless of the child. There's this saying that I hear over and over again, that a parent can only be as happy as their most miserable child is. 
And I do not like that saying. That saying to me is totally bogus. It is not a responsible attitude to have as a parent. As a parent, I want you to take on the attitude that when you have a struggling child, they are far more likely to figure it out, figure it out and get happy if you model true happiness, right? So your ability to find happiness in the face of troubled times is kind of like the bar that can be set for that child to reach someday. That is totally opposite of this whole idea that a parent can only be as happy as their most miserable child. That attitude takes you down with the child. That attitude doesn't make you a rock that that child can depend on when they are struggling. You are not supposed to go down with your child's moods and crises and mental health. I'm not saying you're not going to feel sad. I'm not saying you're not going to have moments and seasons where you're struggling. I'm not saying become a robot, a weird, happy robot, but you should be able to separate your journey from theirs and find happiness in spite of the troubles they are having at the time. Now, let's kind of get back to finding help. An important question that I talk about in, in our center, at our center a lot is how to know if you found the right therapist or psychiatrist. And, and so I'm going to go through this kind of list of things. Number one, the moment you start talking to a therapist or a, a psychiatrist, you sense if there's a connection. And that connection is really important. When that connection doesn't start out, it's a sign that you're, you might not be matched with the therapist that's the best fit for you. Another thing to consider, it seems kind of obvious, but is it helpful. Now, when you go to therapy, it might not feel like it's helpful right away. I usually tell clients, if after this intake session, you believe that we're a good fit, I want you to kind of try it out for 90 days. Okay. Not 90 sessions, but 90 days. Usually I do weekly sessions with people. And if in those three months, your sense is you know what? This is helpful. This is challenging. It is hard, but I can see this kind of going in the direction of growth. I'm not saying you make leaps and bounds necessarily in three months, but there should be a sense of this feels helpful. So often I will hear people tell me they were with a therapist for a year or more, and they were never really sure if it was helping. And then one day they finally decided that it was too much money to spend not knowing if it was helping. That's why I kind of like the three-month and 90-day rule, okay? Another sign that you're with the right therapist is that there's a balance of it feels comfortable, it feels safe, but it's also kind of uncomfortable. I'm going to be honest, my clients will sometimes leave feeling a little bit frustrated with what went on in therapy that day. And sometimes they think I'm brilliant and the, the therapy session was brilliant. Sometimes it feels like there is, was just kind of nothing done. But overall, therapy is often challenging. And so a lot of times there 
are people who go to therapy so that they can instantly feel better. And that's good. Sometimes I, I love it when my clients come to session and then they leave clearly feeling better. But overall, there should be a balance of it feels challenging. It feels uncomfortable at times, but it feels safe. Okay. And, and so if you're going every time and you're not really getting anywhere outside of therapy, but when you go to therapy, you hear all the things that you want to hear. It may be the right fit, but you might want to consider that that therapist isn't necessarily doing therapy. They might be. Okay. I, I don't want to make any assumptions, but sometimes when week after week you go in, you feel really good and it's always really comfortable in the session. And then when you go outside of your life, things don't seem to be changing in any way, shape or form. And you're not being challenged to make internal changes. It might not be the right fit in terms of the therapist. Now, the gender. I get asked this question so often. The gender usually does not matter. There are some crisis and, and trauma situations where a, a gender is going to make you feel safe or unsafe. But overall, gender usually doesn't matter. It's that initial connection that is more important. Okay. And I can't tell you how often, let's say somebody's looking for a female in the practice and nobody's available that's a female and there's only a male available. I can't tell you how often people We'll try the therapist out and go, oh my gosh, wow, okay. I thought I only wanted to work with a female, but working with this male is actually working out really well and, and maybe is even better, okay? Another important piece to know if you're, as you are on this journey to finding the right therapist is, I think it's important to understand that there is a difference between licensed professionals, associates, and interns. Interns are still in school. Associates have completed school and are doing their hours to get licensed. And then licensed professionals have been practicing for a while and have been licensed. Now, a lot of people do not want to work with associates and interns. And I say, go for it. I can't tell you how often I have trained or worked with associates and interns and they are just awesome. And they are maybe even better than some of the licensed therapists. Now, there is something to be said for some issues where you want a licensed professional. And most associates and interns that are practicing up under a supervisor should be being told what cases are appropriate for them to take on. But a lot of times associates and interns are the right fit. And to be honest, they, <laughs> they will often do as good a job, if not a better job than a licensed professional, and they usually cost less. So there's that. A therapist that does not have social skills or an ability to connect, but is really book and research smart, can sometimes be a good fit for a little while or for certain programs that require kind of stringent protocols. But usually they're only going to be a good fit for a season and it, and it doesn't usually last in terms of long-term therapy. So we kind of sometimes know when we're in the presence of somebody who doesn't have those social skills to connect in that kind of meaningful way. And I wouldn't say, okay, give up on it, because if you are participating in a program that is very specific, it might be helpful, okay? But just keep in the back of your mind that this not, might not be the person that you connect with for long-term therapy. The last point that I want to make is 
I want everybody to beware of therapists out there who are just winging it. So you've got therapists who kind of don't have social skills, but then you have some therapists who have really, really good social skills and they're easy to connect with, but they haven't done the book smart stuff, right? They breezed by that or, or rolled through it and didn't really retain it. And so there are some therapists out there who are just winging it. They're really good at the social skills. They're easy to connect with. And they, a lot of times, are the ones that when you go in, it just feels good. Like most of the time, they tell you what you want to hear. A lot of times, they're not really challenging you. Now, sometimes this can be helpful for a period of time, but a lot of times this can actually be dangerous. The therapists who are practicing in an ethical manner that is helpful in the long run are relying on theory. They're relying on research-based theory. They're not just relying on their own good advice, okay? At that point, when therapists behave this way, they might as well just be life coaches. Now, I know life coaches can be helpful sometimes, but you got to remember life coaches are not governed by anybody and life coaches, you know, anybody can become a life coach, to be honest. And so it's much different than a licensed professional or somebody who's working on a license and has an entire state board that is keeping an eye on their practices. But again, keep an eye out and be careful of Working with a therapist that is just winging it, and I know because you haven't had the training, it might be hard to identify that, but what it kind of looks like is a lot of advice and just kind of, it, it almost ends up feeling like just a friend, not a therapist, okay? So I hope this episode might help at least a little bit in terms of you getting help for you and your child. I want to emphasize... Yes, focus on getting your child help, but once you kind of feel like you've hit a roadblock there, please get yourself help. Please get the family help. And remember, this is a long journey. You're going to get a little help here, a little help there, and it's not going, most of you are not going to just all of a sudden fix everything right now within the next few months. And getting little tidbits here and there along the journey is the idea And sometimes the help that you get, you're not even going to realize that it was helpful until way down the road, okay? I appreciate you listening, and I can't wait to speak to you again in the next episode.